0: But also I think that chairs should have, I feel like chairs should have charisma, you know? That's what I really, really enjoyed with those chairs. For me, they were each one of them were a different personality, different person somehow. And I would say that if you design a chair, kind of don't be scared of kind of creating personality and, and charisma because that's what we also need in the world. You know, we can't all just be bland, four legs, and, uh, and and very minimal, and that's great, but we have had a lot of them in the last 10, 20 years.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. Some designers defy any kind of categorization. They're not artists, and they're not interested in creating anything collectible per se. You won't see them designing cubicles or a familiar-looking chandelier or bench. By doing what they do, they make a case for an entirely new genre of work. My guest today is just that kind of talent, his name often spoken of in hushed, respectful tones. For decades, his work has challenged nearly every aspect of his field. Martino Gemper. Born in Italy's Tyrolean Mountains, Martino originally trained as a cabinet maker in his youth, which rooted his career in a no-nonsense, professional level of craft. After spending some time as a young man in the United States, he found his way to Vienna, to study art under Michelangelo Pistoletto, a radical artist and one of the stars of the Arte Povera movement. He later studied design under legends like Ron Arad at the Royal College of Art in 2000. He then opened his studio in London, where he's been mostly ever since. At a recent show in Milan's Nilofar Gallery, he created a series of furniture pieces that are the equivalent of a remix song. He took a large cache of Bauhaus-looking furniture from a now-defunct brand called Cox, scanned them, and then recreated the pieces with contemporary materials and colors, but mixed together in unusual ways. The corner of one piece substituted with the armrest of another, and so on. The effect is like a cubist painting brought to life. When not creating avant-garde pieces for galleries, he's creating special projects and interiors for brands such as Dior and Prada, restaurants for Michelin-starred chefs, and yes, some stools too. And in his spare time, a small publishing business. I spoke with Martino during his summer holiday to chat about his now-famed 100 Chairs project, what it was like being a teenage carpenter, some of his latest projects, and his take on today's design culture. Before you studied sculpture and design in places like Vienna and London, you were raised in the Tyrolean Alps. Uh, What was that like?
0: Quite uh, innocent and wonderful. I mean, um, you know, it's basically the, the most northern part of Italy. Beautiful mountains and um, small little towns. And
1: did you grow up uh, speaking uh, German, or did you like sort of an Austrian German, or was it uh, Italian?
0: Um, yeah. So my my mum's family speaks Ladino, like a third language that we have. And then we have German Austrian dialect that we speak, and then we have Italian. So I speak I spoke kind of uh, Tyrolean at home, but obviously Italian um, with anyone else living there. So yeah, a lot of languages. And what is Tyrolean like? It's kind of a Austrian dialect that, with a lot of particular words that don't exist in the in the Alps. So um, it's kind of a if you would not know, you would think it kind of sounds Swiss or something like um, a mountain language. <laughs> quite funny words. Quite funny words sometimes.
1: <laughs> what's a what's a funny word in in that language?
0: Orkazlischwurf. That's the tail of a the the tail of a uh, of a squirrel. <laughs> the
1: tail of a squirrel. Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> that's very specific too. You know that you know where that comes from. And what did your parents do? So my my dad was running a, a wine and apple farm,
0: but by the time I was seven, we moved away because um, he his health wasn't particularly great. I guess we am using a lot of pesticides, and I guess trying to. Um, trying to make a living with uh, four children. And so we moved to town and he got a different job. I was still in, in winemaking. So part of my childhood was kind of growing up in the countryside, wielding really countryside uh, in vineyards and
1: apple orchards. What kind of wine?
0: Uh, mostly white wine, um, small town called Terlano, Terlano, quite known in, throughout Italy for its
1: uh, white wines. Um, Pinot Blanc, um, Chardonnay, Gewürztraminer. And... Uh, you know, I, I read that you studied as a young, you know, cabinet maker, and you kind of were apprenticed off early, pretty young. Like, how did that happen? So that's
0: that. At that time, when you went to school at the age of fourteen, you basically had done your, your schooling. And since I wasn't the um, wasn't most excited about school, I didn't quite enjoy school. School was a lot. I loved certain subjects, but I guess I had quite a strong form of dyslexia. There wasn't. At that time, not really known so much. Uh, I found it very difficult to do certain, to study certain subjects. Um, I was always interested in making, making objects. So um, arts was great. I decided that I wanted to to um, not get a job. I wanted to learn a job. I wanted to do an apprenticeship at the age of 14. There's an interesting um, what they call a dual system. So you basically look for a master that would kind of take you on. He had to be accredited as a master maker and then you would uh, work for um, for the master for four days a week and the fifth day you would go to school um, vocational school so it means you continue somehow your studies to a minimum but you also learn learn a trade so i opted for cabinet making and um, did it for five years and then at the end of the five years you do a degree you basically have to design a piece Draft it, make it, and um, do a cost analysis.
1: And yeah. wow, it sounds like a design school for teenagers, essentially.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, and it kept me out of trouble because I, I I could channel all those energies I had into making and obviously working hard at fourteen. You're quite young to work nine hours a day, but I didn't mind. It was
1: a good way of channeling the extra energy I had. Before we return to Martino, a word from our partner Polyform. With its Italian roots dating back to 1970, Polyform is the ultimate purveyor of design-driven products that outfit nearly every inch of the modern home. From its stunning kitchens and dreamlike storage systems to sleek and inviting sofas. Using decades of knowledge and a mastery of Italian style, Polyform's incredible designs go beyond the ephemeral trends we see so often today. Instead, they exude a kind of recognizable elegance you'd come to expect from a company headquartered in Brianza near Lake Como. As the grand tourist is always shopping for his next remodel or just dreaming about it, Polyform has many instant icons to consider. The shelving and closet systems by Polyform use timeless qualities of design to achieve dazzling results. One such system is the Lexington by Jean-Marie Massaud and is a standout for its modularity and flexibility. In this system, mid-century style meets the 21st century. With a strong architectural signature, The Lexington can create bookshelves, room dividers, walk-in closet systems, drawers, writing desks, and all with optional integrated LED lighting. Either connected to the wall or ceiling, the Lexington blurs the lines between private and public spaces for more contemporary domestic spaces, and they come in a sophisticated array of options like oak and walnut. For more information about the Lexington and all of the brand's incredible works of design, visit polyform.com. Do you consider yourself like an industrial designer? Like, do you see yourself like a Philippe Stark or kind of Piero Lissoni or somebody who would create products for brands and classics in design studio kind of thing?
0: Um, I see myself more of a, a free agent, a free kind of spirit in that sense. I mean, I've because when I was in Vienna, I, I got offered a summer job at Matteo Tunes Studio in Milan, and I worked there for two years. And that's where I did industrial design. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to actually leave as well, Milan, because I had a perfect, perfect nice job in Milan working for a big studio and doing interesting things. But I realized that there wasn't enough of, of me. And so I wouldn't call myself industrial designer, even though I, I, I'm happily, I happily work industrially, you know, I happily work, use industrial processes. I've designed stuff for various companies from Tone to Magis to, other companies, you know. So um, I, I understand the process, of understand the industry, but I realize that I've always tried to choose my own way and that my own way is kind of doing more experimental work, um, one-off work, and, and kind of pushing my own kind of interest in that sense, rather than trying to follow the industry. I think the industry is somehow a little bit stuck as well. I find that there's something not quite right i think with the model the way it works how what do you think what do you think is wrong i think there is a a sense that designers should just uh they should just design work and then companies come along and say hey i got any good ideas for me show me what you're doing i guess uh like a music industry you know like the singer should just develop songs and interesting records and then Industry and the and the the music industry comes along. Hey, would you like to jump on my thing? I could, I could. (laughs) But the the difference is that the music industry would actually uh, really push you, and would really kind of make sure that 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 song is going to go out there and really do well. While well, I would say the furniture industry is particular. You design something and then you might be working a year on it. And afterwards they would say, no, nah, actually it just didn't quite fit. Our market department is not really happy with that. So basically you, you waste a year of your work, unpaid work, because you only get paid if the product is basically um, sold um, in the shop or yeah, to wholesalers. It doesn't really pay for experimentation and research like in any other field. you know. So I think the industry doesn't really want to invest in research. They just want to invest in ideas that are kind of finished and baked. And that's, I guess, sometimes you can see, you can see that um, there's not so much. So it
1: encourages. So, yeah, it encourages people to to be safe and essentially to, to design things that low risk. Right. You know, in terms of what they think the marketing department is going to think that they can sell.
0: Yeah. So it's a lot a lot of compromise, I think. And it's a shame because they, especially in, in the Italian design scene did not um, did not develop like that. They were uh, interesting, mostly architects who didn't have so much work in architecture in Italy, especially. And they had plenty of, um, I guess, time in their hands to design other th- objects and products. And they were really interesting kind of um, young companies who were springing out of you know, traditional kind of manufacturing. And they were Looking for things to have this conversation as well. I think a lot of it is also I, what I miss in the industry is not, not that much conversation. That's fruitful, you know, it's a lot about, okay, what we got? Oh, that's good. That's bad. Okay. But it's fine. I mean, uh, I found my own, I found my own uh, w- little world and, um, uh, um, it's nice now and then to do, do a bit of products. Um, but I also quite enjoy developing my own products. So kind of develop products that I, I manufacture or have manufactured myself I sell myself and I kind of have my own kind of range of products but it's equally interesting as a as a designer and um, entrepreneur because that's what we are as well we are entrepreneurs um, who have to find different ways also of getting our ideas out there. So I think the industrial design is one way of getting your ideas out there. And it's one market, but there's other ways of doing it as well. I mean...
1: Before we return to Martino, a word from our sponsor, Fort Street Studio. Fort Street Studio's sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. The brand services a global clientele from its flagship showroom in Manhattan, where their team of specialists guide interior designers, architects, and collectors through the studio's offerings. The legendary outfit has an extensive catalog where each design can be customized endlessly, but they also carry stock carpets in standard sizes. As the offerings of Fort Street Studio are so expertly hand-knotted, photos rarely do these works of art justice. That's why an in-person consultation is so key. Only then can the subtleties of Ruck design and its colors can truly come to life. To book your own consultation, visit fortstreetstudio.com. And, you know, speaking about creating your own world, I would like to say that your your 100 Chairs project uh, really was something that seemed to hit a nerve um, at, a, at a time when it, it seemed super radical and universally beloved in a way that I think kind of touched people in a sense that it didn't feel commercial. That Can you, can you explain what that project is and, and how it started?
0: Um, it all started with, uh, again, uh, being in London, driving around, cycling around and finding disused bits of furniture, mostly chairs on the street so with a friend of mine, uh, Rainer who lives in Berlin. We kind of collected, uh, we collected those chairs a bit and, uh, we, we lived in a big warehouse back in the nineties in London. One day we got asked by the Victorian Albert Museum to be part of a summer fete. So we had this kind of summer festival there, where they invited c- young creatives, designers, artists um, to have a little stall and and to show a process or or basically sell something that was kind of um, a token of their practice. Or so, me and Reiner just took all those bits of broken furniture we found from the streets. We took it to the Vien- Victorian Art Museum, to the garden, and took our hand tools with with us. And we asked people to if they wanted to have a piece of furniture, we would make it there ad hoc. You know, we call it furniture while you wait so people could choose. I want this piece of wood and this piece of wood and this piece of wood. And I like the shelf. So we would just cobble something together uh, right there, rough and ready. And and that was really fun. And we thought, oh, that's amazing. Like, you know, you get so much pleasure out of using, reusing something, making something. And then in the year after, they asked us again. So then we followed our, once the thing was finished, we went back to our jobs, did our design. But somehow a seed was planted and we realized it was really enjoyable. There was something there that really kind of... And then the year after we did it again, with more health and safety. We couldn't do the ad hoc making there. We had to make the pieces beforehand cause I had, because I previously drilled into my finger. Anyway, I fainted and then... Anyway, all fine. So we made the furniture beforehand, but we cooked because cooking has always been one of my interests. So we call it um, furniture while you eat. Again, people were interested in, in buying those pieces. So there, there it was. We met the curator from Sotheby's, uh, working with Sotheby's on, on contemporary design shows. Um, and one show was called Waste to Taste, where she basically tried to put together a lot of designers who work with reclaiming, recycling waste in, as part of their kind of work. So she invited us and Ryan at that time had just left. He left London. So I was, kind of left alone with all these chair parts and all these bits and I started making these kind of chairs for for the show and uh, at the same time as I was working on a book on a book uh, of, of my work from basically from college time onwards uh, with a friend of mine Maki and uh, he um, said so what's the next project you want to do and I said well I think I have this idea I really want to make loads of those chairs like I have I really enjoy this process. And he said, well, what, what, how many? I said, well, I guess 100. And I want to make them really, really fast. Basically, he printed the thing. I said, 100 a 100 days, that's my project. So he did the graphics, he printed it in the book, once the book was printed, I had to do this project. So, so the, I, the book was printed before. No, so it was a book of my of my work. So it, it just said a page: oh, okay, okay. "100 Chairs in 100 Days: Future Project by Martino Gamper." So you were then obligated to make it happen. <laughs> I was obligated to make it happening. So yeah. So um, consequently, I, I basically collected more chairs. I probably had about two hundred fifty, three hundred chair parts in this big warehouse. I moved my warehouses, well, I had a bigger warehouse at that point. And I would I would take out one day of my life to make a chair. And that would be going on for two years. So I didn't do it consequently in days because I was teaching at the
1: time, as working. working. So. But I took out a day for the chair. Oh, wow, okay. So that was like what, once a week or once or twice a week? Sometimes it was like
0: once, twice a week, uh, sometimes like a whole week. I prefer to do it like in, in batches of every day, but then uh, again, there's other things to do in life, you know?
1: What what, what did you learn from that process? Because it must be almost like it's its its own, obviously you're very skilled, and you had a lot of experience and a lot of training, but in a kind of exercise like that, which is so unconventional and so fast, what did you learn? Well, I learned
0: that at the end of the day, the, you know, the trigger for ideas, for designer, Happens when you touch something, when you are in, you know, when you are not necessarily when you sit in front of a white piece of paper. So I realized the white piece of paper was actually the scary part. You know, you have a piece of paper and you gotta have this, like, this amazing idea and you gotta start sketching, and you're like, well, it's not quite coming today. It's not quite, you know. So the, I realized when I had, when you had all this work around you, that some of it was obviously very uh, some classic design pieces, some of it was no name design. So suddenly there was a lot of I guess it was again and coming back to music again you sample something you need a lot of different parts of music to inspire you it wasn't a, a a room with no noise and i was starting to compose something i had all these different music bits musical bits that i was listening to or they were surrounded with so i started then taking parts and 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 kind of three-dimensionally sketching and and i realized yeah a lot of times as designers we put ideas on a piece of paper and then we have to translate so that's the right translation and then from a piece of paper, we translate again into a three-dimensional object. While here, I was kind of going straight. I was like straight into the into the making part. And suddenly ideas would come. Suddenly shape would come. Forms would, would kind of uh, start developing in front of my eyes or, or kind of, you know. So that was really exciting. And uh, I think the other thing that I really learned is about not being scared of mixing different bits of decades together, you know or different type of design because it's all part of our of our history it's not like one is more important than others it's all part of what this how design evolved over the years so in having those kind of mismatches and and i think really taught me how um, a lot about the history of design how other people had designed chairs also, when you start cutting into a you know, piece of wood or metal and you take the screws apart, you see how much some people have actually spent time on designing those details. They, you know, they're, they're kind of hidden at first. And so it's almost kind of a morphology. You, know? you kind of take something into bits and then reassemble it again. So by taking it apart, you learn a lot about what other people have done. And... And how other people had fixed so some of the chairs were kind of previously fixed and broke again so there was an interesting interesting interventions as well from, from someone yeah and i think also about a lot a lot about comfort because obviously I, I tried to make chairs you could sit on i mean that was my main focus as well to make it wasn't just a, a sculpture that you look at i really wanted to people to sit on, on those chairs as well, or for myself to learn what comfort actually means. What happened to the 100
1: chairs? Where are they today?
0: So um, when I did the show, so I did the show in London at first, in the very nice kind of um, historic house, at number five Cromwell Place. Uh, my design gallery, gallerist from Milan, Nina Yashar, she came and saw the show and she wanted straight away to buy them and i had no idea that anyone wanted to buy the 100 of these kind of chairs i never thought i actually wanted to auction them off at one point i had this idea of auctioning off between friends and family and so on and then while i did the show actually i offered a i had a little slip like a paper slip where people could write on what they would uh, what they would swap it with so i have about a 100 bits of paper with people or maybe more Few hundred of them. People offered me all kinds of kind of swaps for it, you know, get out of jail car to whatever, I write a song for you, I make love to you, I cook for you, I write a book for you. So it was very interesting to see what people, what people kind of offer as well in exchange for um, a very Individual one kind of charismatic chair. So yeah, so the Nina offered me offered to buy them. I needed some time to think about that, but at the end of the day, I, I think it was the right decision. They're part of her private collections, and and therefore cannot be taken apart, so they have to stay together as one one collection that so was important to me at that point as well and um, and they're traveling though they've been in about 10 different museums around the world so far and and still going and if any of you out there want to show
1: them let me know because they should be traveling the world I guess today fast forwarding a bit if so, if you met somebody uh, you know professionally who didn't know your work at all how would you describe your yourself to them
0: so i would say um i am um a designer who whose process is very much driven by making um i a lot of of my projects or design is about not just designing something but also making it hand in hand or (laughs) say a lot about processes so be it um what kind of materials i use trying to i guess break the boundaries a little bit between what we consider Design what we consider art, what we consider interior design, what we consider kind of intellectual design or, or kind of one-off design so I'm, I'm always been interested in kind of um, playing breaking some of the boundaries, um, starting conversations about that about how um, objects come
1: how objects are designed how objects come to life, how objects live within with us. I mean I, I would say that you don't you probably get offered a lot of commissions. I would assume. I would assume that people would come to you and say, please design my new sectional sofa, you know, or please design, I don't know, like something kind of what you would see at one of the many, many, many booths at Milan, you know, at the Salone and at, during Milan Design Week. Um, how do you kind of choose your projects? And, and um, because it seems like you've, you've kept you know you're not an you're not necessarily just an artist per se you do take obviously lots of commissions for interiors and beautiful work but you clearly choose your projects very carefully and so i'm kind of wondering you know what gets you excited about any kind of commission
0: i do get offered quite a bit of work not so much in industry somehow i think industries doesn't quite know how to they don't think i i fit somehow into their I don't know. But I got offered other work, a lot of commissions, a lot of private commissions. I got offered also a lot of interesting kind of nice kind of commissions or projects where people go like, I can't think of anyone, but you came to mind, uh, almost like the alchemist, you know? You can't find the thing, so you need the alchemist to kind of... Finds a potion for something I don't know. So and I think that's that's been very interesting. I, I actually prefer that way to uh, rather than working with a lot of lot of companies. I really enjoy kind of having this specific project. You know where um, people come to me and they they think, well, I've been observing your work. I'm not quite sure where to place you, but I I really think this is the project for you. I, I feel very fortunate, you know, that I can choose work. So that's first of all, I mean, um, to be said that I feel very fortunate. That I can actually choose work rather than having to take any any job that just comes along but i also think it goes back to to the conversation about you know um uh, what kind of designer designer am i designers are are very lucky because not only can they design their own practice i think they have to design their own practice so apart from designing a chair or a table or whatever or furniture or or interfaces or or whatever i think as designers we also have responsibility to to our own kind of work to design our own practice that means choosing where you want to be designing what kind of work you want to do what's the methodology behind it and how you want to approach design and and that will also inform very strongly what the the products will be i think so rather than just jumping into okay i'm I'm, i can do anything you know i I can solve any problem i think sometimes you have to ask yourself what do i really actually want to do and i think that comes back to like that kind of conversation about i choose object or projects that i really feel like Challenge me as a designer, but I really feel like they are teaching me something there is research possibility for me to grow and 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 create objects that hopefully last as well. That's something very important to me. Objects that will be um cherished and and last and um of course they they will go out of fashion at at one point uh like anything else in design, but you hope that they will be cherished by whoever uses them. And and maybe pass down a generation or so, you know, and
1: and keep on being used. You know, what's your studio setup like today? Is it? Are you working solo? Do you have a team? Like, what what is your setup like? Because I think you're you're splitting your time between London and I. I heard you go to New Zealand for your. Where are you, where are you now? You're you're equated with lots of different places.
0: So now I'm in Italy on holiday. August, sacred months of. Okay. <laughs> 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 not today. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I, I I'm I'm very fortunate. to have a I have a. Small studio in London where we are, um, between six and seven people. Most of them designers and creatives who also have their own practice outside or artists as well. So, um, I really enjoyed the, the, the idea that people have their own practice outside, but come to the studio because they want to do some other work and they have, I guess, also have to earn some money. And, and so it's kind of a mix of, um, of, of, of kind of, um, um, knowledge. So some are makers, some are uh, good on a computer, some both. Um, and so, so that's kind of the main thing in London. We have a workshop there and we make stuff there. We prototype stuff there. We experiment there. Then I have a, um, a workshop outside London uh, that I share with a um, maker called Adam Kershaw. He's a brilliant maker who I met 20 years ago, um, also the RCA. He makes a lot of this stuff um, for us. Um, with us so it's kind of a very open kind of relationship we have where we where we both kind of contribute to and then have workshops in um, italy artisans that i've also been working with for 20 years and in some cases we're a second generation of makers that do more bespoke stuff and uh yeah so yeah london italy and new zealand because my wife francesy britchard an artist um, um, is from new zealand and we spend quite a bit of time there in the winter and there, um, I'm fortunate enough to do, to do very, very crafty work. You know, we work a lot with local potters and, and makers and uh, interesting wood as well there, interesting timber, native timber. So I guess it's more me working solo there, you know, either with clay or with a chainsaw or another tool and, and kind of having that time to reflect and think. And, and then London is more of a kind of a studio environment.
1: Before we return to Martino, a word from our sponsor, Gloucester. At Gloucester, they open the doors to beautiful exteriors by taking the long view and using the very best materials and techniques available. Gloucester's aim is to deliver impeccable furniture and countless special outdoor moments. Renowned for their use of fine teak, contemporary materials, and award-winning designs, the same passion, pride, and conviction that launched the Gloucester brand in 1970, continues to fuel the business. Today, trade studios and premium retail partners represent the brand and support their clients wherever they're found. And Gloucester's trade studios are in the heart of internationally recognized design districts, New York, LA, Chicago, and the Dakota, Florida. And the brand also collaborates with the very best retail names throughout the country. Explore the Gloucester brand online, find your nearest Gloucester vendor, view products, sign up to the newsletter, and use a 3D planner to dream up your perfect outdoor space and space at Gloucester.com or follow at Gloucester Furniture on Instagram or Pinterest for regular updates and stunning imagery from their latest collections. Gloucester Furniture, wherever you find them, you won't be disappointed. And you also sort of have your own little publication shop and your own little printing kind of business. And how did that start and why on earth would you add? Well, the torturous world of publish, independent publishing uh, to to your list of responsibilities.
0: Yeah, so uh, when Neville wrote, wrote the book, The End of Print, the, so the, yeah, the End of Print, back in the 90s, that's when we thought we have to start publishing now. Um, I started with my fellow uh, kind of CA, uh, friends, um, um, Maki Suzuki, Kaiser Stoll, and Gemma Holt lately as well. Um, and uh, basically, when when we published the first book, the one I was talking about, uh, the um, the hundred chairs project was announced. We needed a publisher because we self-published, and we didn't didn't have any publisher. So um, I said, just write kind of something dandelion because we were doing a lot of cooking with dandelion, something dandelion. So we call it Dentelione. It's kind of a Italian-French dandelion, um means dandelion. Um, and, um, so we started doing one book and then the 100 chair publishing came up. So we published the 100, first 100 chair book and it was a really big, big success. So we saw the first edition and then we thought, well, we could do other books as well. So, um, in the meantime, we'd probably done about 80 to 80 to a hundred, uh, titles, mostly design, some of art, um, some fashion. But most of them is about creating interesting, uh, interesting, uh, objects, interesting books. So they're really, really one could be more different to the other. There's not one particular kind of design that we adhere to. It's mostly the work that excites us. And, uh, yeah, and it keeps going. So we just done the third, uh, public, uh, third publishing of the J.B. Blank book, third edition already, the fourth of the hundred chairs. So. Some books just keep on selling, and and that enables us. Every book that really sells enables us to to print more other books. Some of them maybe not as big sellers, but still interesting to publish.
1: Are you doing a lot of you know interior interior design for residential for private clients?
0: Yeah, mostly mostly furniture rather than complete interior. But I've also done a complete interior jobs, and I do like that because it means. I like the commission because you know what the project is, you know who the who your client is, you know what where it's going to go into and what kind of architecture and also geography where you know where is the place. Kind of a conversation happen with the architect or the architects or whoever else works on it, and I like those collaborations when you kind of can be part of a team as well, and you create something that people are going to be, you know, um, it's a it's a complete project, you know, the you know. Um, it's not just one element, a chair, and then someone might buy it in the shop and, you know, put it somewhere in the house. So I, I do enjoy the kind of the completeness of an interior design project.
1: And you also did uh, a collaboration with Dior for for Salone this year, um, where you sort of redesigned their medallion chair. Um, can you explain what you did uh, with that particular chair and kind of how it fits in with with your sensibility, which I would say is your sensibility is not a not a very Dior sensibility when I, and I think in anyone's mind, but it makes it so so alluring. Tell me about it. So it's interesting because when
0: they contacted me, um, they are taking pictures out of the 100 book. Send me snaps of them, what they thought the medallion chair, my medallion chair could look like. And I thought actually, the, I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to take away ornaments. <laughs> Rather than adding, adding more to it, I wanted to actually design something that was, first of all, really comfortable because the the medallion chair has never been the most comfortable chair. And I wanted to take away the ornaments and make it kind of really uh, a chair that could be, could really be really reproduced. So uh, I suddenly saw it more of an almost as an industrial design <laughs> exercise than an than artistic one. So at first, they were a little bit like, uh, disappointed because it's like, yeah, but that's not you. But I think at one point they realized actually no that's that's what their that chair could also be so yeah and so yeah so I made a kind of a, kind of a bandwood version of of a medallion chair that's kind of very elegant lines um, still kind of keeping with that very large kind of back uh,
1: backrest almost looking like a macaron <laughs> macaron. You're seen as kind of a a designer's designer if that if that tra- if that makes any sense to you. Um, how would you describe this sort of moment that we're in now in design, you know, in two thousand twenty two, you know, coming out of a pandemic? Um, you know, you're also based in London, so you you're dealing with kind of post-Brexit era, you know, it's it's a very kind of everyone would kind of say that we're in this sort of unusual time. You know, how would you describe the design world as it is today?
0: I think we're the design world we we definitely a little bit lost I would say. <laughs> but I guess any any kind of um decade that um, was lost or or maybe had overexposure or had too much the same also has a great opportunity to, you know, to 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 change. So I think we are we are we're the kind of gateway, you know, way with with a crossing, I think. We haven't quite hit the crossing yet or the dead end or whatever to call it. But we definitely the crossing out there we uh, we realized we got somehow too many too much design out there and too much kind of consumption and needless kind of every year. But at the same time I also feel like people are still looking for design and because they're haven't quite found what they what they're looking for and they are a little bit frustrated as well that they can't find furniture that are actually lasting and and beautiful and um furniture or, or project that have actually got an interesting story to tell and uh, that are uh, kind of sustainable whatever that means as well you know sustainable in time sustainable material sustainable in our society so i think we're we're at an interesting crossroad I, I i see it as really exciting because i've always been someone who like kind of taking part of certain areas and kind of re reconfiguring them so i'm not in, i'm not worried that my design is hitting a a dead end, because I always feel like we are just about, I think, digesting the design of maybe 20, 30 years ago. I think that's the other th- reality, I think, is design that since it's been going so fast, we think we know what the latest objects looks like, the latest product. But I really feel like sometimes it's been such an acceleration of design that we haven't quite digested yet the design of some decades ago. So I feel like I'm not saying we have to go retro. But I feel like learning from what the past, or the problematics that the past has had. I mean, we talk about sustainability. You know, I mean, a lot of the conversation uh, that we're having now. If you look at the whole Earth catalog from 1968 or 19 or 70, early 70s, it's all in there. You know, and it's like there's nothing new to be added to that conversation. We still haven't quite dealt with that. We just accelerated, and we thought we are. You know, we, we can be faster than. And I think now things are catching up with us. So I, I think this time around we, got, we have to get them right, but it doesn't mean getting right doesn't mean that we have to become really, really boring and, uh, and, 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 uh, and go back to some design that is super uh, minimal, neither has to be super kind of, um, in other extreme that I think we have to find a design that works for more than for more people. I think. And I think we also have to maybe ask ourselves, do we need to buy chairs every year, you know, or every, every few years, you know? So that means maybe selling less, but maybe selling better products and also things, maybe selling products that you can fix. I think there's definitely a really important part of it. I think in the future that we think about that things can be repaired. I mean, we can't really afford to make things that we throw away after whatever ten times a year. So I think it's a big great challenge. And I think once we got once we start on that on that kind of thing that we want things to last and be repairable and and be reusable. And then I think we have a lot of work to be done for us designers. There's a lot more work
1: to be done. If you were if you know the head of uh, Milan Design Week and the Salone and all of all of those guys and girls came to you and said, Okay, Martino We are going to listen to you completely. You have complete and total control over Milan Design Week and the whole design industry. And everyone is just, you you can come up with, you know, three rules that everyone will kind of abide by or changes you would like to make. Is there anything that you've ever thought like, oh, if I could just change one thing about this industry, this is what it would be?
0: I think I will go back to the Trenale. So Design Week used to be a Trenale every three years. I guess three years might be a little pushing it, but I think we could definitely do a biennale. And that would mean that uh I don't know, companies had one year one more year to really think about and, and do research. One year of research and one year of actually producing something rather than now, you know, by the time Milan is finished there's the summer and then like basically in September is already a, it's already kind of too late to kind of start, you know, a new product. So I think having well, what, what COVID showed us as well, that there was a break of about two years, over and a half years. Nobody kind of, um, everyone enjoyed that kind of extra time. You know, apart from people still have to sell, obviously, furniture and, and products. But it seems like that wasn't an issue. Um, so I think I would go back to uh, Adile Trenale. Every three years, you meet in Milan and then we really see research, we really see New, new kind of avenues, and we really kind of push things, and yeah, rather than and that money that we that all the companies save by kind of keep on pushing this, this kind of new newness, invested in yeah in research, in young designers, in new new kind of experiments, materials, and so on and so on, technology, and and also or or culturally as well, you know, I think it's we always talk about as technology is going to push us further, but Culture can push us uh, much further as well. So that means engage culturally as well as a, as, as a as a design brand. And uh, I could only only kind of think of one particular company that did this really well. It was Olivetti, back in the sixties and seventies. You know, as a technological kind of tech brand, who tech company who really pushed culture at its extremes. You know, they were really doing lots of architecture. Loads of craft design, amazing craft design, lots of exhibitions.
1: A special thanks once again to Martino Gamper, Neil LaFar Gallery, and to Julia Castelli for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.